Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire. I'm one of your hosts, Emmett, also known as Poor Quentin. I'm your other host, Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And welcome to the 195th episode of the Nauticast, titled Broken Crown, an analysis of A Storm of Swords, Catalan 5, in which Rob Stark and his fighting Northmen make their long, slow, sad way through the rain towards the twins. At least there's a great party waiting for him. You know, on the show, Brendan Tully called Walder Frey a wet shit. And honestly, that's basically what the trudge up to the crossing is. <laughs> Walder Frey has a lot in common with Craster. And isn't that what Dolores said says about Craster's keep the mud there? Do you think this is all just Craster's shit? Is this whole hill made of Craster's shit? <laughs> that's the Riverlands for you these days. And we are very excited to welcome our special guest to the podcast today. Uh, they came on one of my Star Wars episodes, but this is their first time on the main cast. Everybody say hi to Pat. Thanks for coming on. Oh, thank you. I'm happy to be here. So our spoiler warning, as always, prepare to be spoiled for the five novels, the three Duncan Egg novellas, any histories, interviews, Winds of Winter sample chapters, sample chapters, Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones and House of the Dragon, the TV shows. Anything and everything. Our question this episode comes from our patron, Deborah, who asks, what do you two think will happen to the various Westerlings, including Reynold, if you think he's still alive? So that's a good start. Uh, what, what do you uh, two think about the theory that Reynold Westerling, the one who goes to the twins with Rob, is, is actually still alive because we didn't see a body? I mean, I think it's very plausible. I'm not really invested in it one yeah, way or another, same. but I generally uh, hew to the rule that you haven't seen a body, so it's definitely in play. And there's definitely a role for a Reynold Westerling to play with a reformed Brotherhood Without Banners, uh, allying with River Run. There's a very logical place for him to slip in. So it's one of the things where I say, yeah, it's plausible, but I haven't really, I don't care enough to decide whether <laughs> I actually think he survived it or That's not. That's totally kind fair. Of thing. That's totally fair. What about you, Pat? I yeah I I agree I think that uh, Reynold with the Brotherhood makes sense I also haven't really thought about it I'm gonna be honest I'm more like waiting for comeuppance for the Spicers so that's fair I'm like I want I want to know what happens to like Sybil and Rolf I'm like I'm I'm waiting let's see uh, I I think that Jane may not be long for the world. I know that where there's like hints that the the beginning of the or the um prologue for the mm-hmm. next book is gonna not be her point of view, but what happens to her, and it's very on brand for the actual good Westerling to uh bear the consequences of her mother's and uncle's actions. Suffer with the rest. Yeah, I've always thought that because especially from Stoneheart's more vengeful perspective. She's probably not going to believe that Jane wasn't in on the plan to, to betray Rob. And yes, Sibel, I don't know, there's, a, there's a, a handful of characters in A Song of Ice and Fire who really get under my skin, and Sibel is one of them. The, just the way she talks to and about her daughter is so callous, and even Jamie immediately just like wants to kill her. Uh, she's just a lot to take. So I am, I, I am curious to, to see what happens there. Probably nothing good, but probably, you know, whatever righteous joy we'd get out of Sabelle being punished is going to be complicated by Jane also suffering, I think is probably going to be the idea, right? True. And I have I have the uh, the family tree on my phone because I can't remember names. But it does say here that Rolf is now the Lord of Castamere, which a wonderful I mean, precedent. That, that seems that seems like a cursed gift, if anything else. That's like yeah, that's like giving away Heron Hall at this point. That is that is not wise. Yeah, they're the not long for this world, the Westerlings, I would say, as a whole, unfortunately. Even the nice ones. Yeah. 
perfect wish fulfillment storytelling would be that the Spicers get their comeuppance. And since most of the Westerlings still alive um, are basically the next generation, Jane and her siblings, um, you'd want them to theoretically live. But we know George well enough that we don't get those unqualified wins that often. Um, It would be very poignant and very appropriate if Jane and or her siblings die in either what happens on the caravan back to Casterly Rock or Red Wedding 2.0 or any number of events that I think, bad events that I think are still going to befall in the Westerlands. Totally agreed. And probably same with the phrase, you know, at some point the phrase who were kicked out before the Red Wedding because they liked the Starks. Yeah, it was Oliver Frey and Perwin Frey, the nice phrase. At some point, they're coming home, and or they're going along with the the wedding to happen between Dave and Lannister, where we think probably there's gonna the Stoneheart's gonna attack. So that it's also gonna feel that way, where you know everyone's cheering and hooting when we take down Black Walder or the other obviously villainous phrase, but the cheers start to wither and die when it comes to the ones who were loyal to Rob, and I think unfortunately they're probably gonna get caught up in it just as much. So uh, thank you to Deborah for the question. If you uh, want to ask us questions, we are forced to answer here on the Nauticast podcast. You can head on over to patreon.com slash Nauticast, A-S-O-I-A-F, where our patrons get early access to our episodes, exclusive episodes every month, and other benefits, again, including the right to force us to answer your questions. But getting ahead to today's chapter, we're here to talk about A Storm of Swords, Catalan 5, and here is its synopsis. King Rob is saying goodbye to his Queen Jane. Not for the first time. That was in the Riverrun Godswood. No, not even for the second time. That was at the Castle Gates. This is the third time, and we're an hour into the march, and it's raining. So Catelyn can see that while Rob is moved by Jane's persistence in wanting to be her husband's plus one to Uncle Edmure's wedding, he's also annoyed that he has to comfort her in front of his entire army. Grey Wind is sick of waiting too, and runs ahead as soon as Jane is sent back. Hopefully for good this time. Queen Jane has a loving heart, I see, said, Le- said lame Lothar Frey to Catelyn. Not unlike my own sisters. Why, I would wager a guess that even now Rosalind is dancing round the twins, chanting Lady Tully, Lady Tully, Lady Rosalind Tully. By the morrow she'll be holding swatches of river run red and blue to her cheek to picture how she'll look in her bride's cloak. He turned in the saddle to smile at Edmure. But you are strangely quiet, Lord Tully. How do you feel, I wonder? Much as I did at the stone mill, just before the war horn sounded, Edmure said, only half in jest. Lothar gave a good-natured laugh. Let us pray your marriage ends as happily, my lord. Damn. Coming from the event planner for the Red Wedding, that is ice cold. As Catelyn rides, she thinks that it was her call to leave Jane behind at River Run. While Walder Frey might be offended that the young queen didn't attend the wedding, that's better than forcing Rob and Jane to stand there while the old man insults her. Catelyn knows that Rob wouldn't be able to swallow that, And Rob knows that too, but he still resents her for it. No greater crime for a mother than being right. It's not just Jane. Almost all of the Westerlings have been sent away, lest they offend the phrase. Rob sent Jane's uncle Rolf Spicer to escort Martin Lannister to the Westerlands in a hostage swap for Robert Glover. Catelyn is just glad that Grey Wind, who didn't care for Rolf's smell, is able to hang out with Rob in public again. Jane's mother Sibylle is also staying behind at Riverrun with her younger children. Only Reynold Westerling is coming with, and he swears he won't be provoked by any fray insults. Oh, my poor dude. If only that was all you had to deal with. Indeed, Catelyn is afraid they might face worse than insults, given her family's, let's say, troubled history with Walter Frey. Jane will be safe at Riverrun with the Blackfish, who's been put in charge of the Riverlands by Rob while he takes back the North. Catelyn knows her uncle was the best man for the job, but he was also the best man for every other job, like the job of advising Rob in battle. 
and for that alone, Catelyn wishes the Blackfish was still with them. Galbert Glover commands the scouts in his place. Behind him comes Great John Umber with the van and the main column where Catelyn rides. Then the baggage train under Wendell Manderley, then a bunch of herds and camp followers, and finally Robin Flint commanding the rearguard. 3,500 they were. 3,500 who had been blooded in the Whispering Wood, who had reddened their swords at the Battle of the Camps, at Oxcross, Ashmark, and the Crag, and all through the gold-rich hills of the Lannister West. Aside from her brother Edmure's modest retinue of friends, the lords of the Trident had remained to hold the Riverlands while the king retook the north. Ahead awaited Edmure's bride and Rob's next battle. And for me, two dead sons, an empty bed, and a castle full of ghosts. It was a cheerless prospect. Brienne, where are you? Bring my girls back to me, Brienne. Bring them back safe. Real good news, bad news situation here. Good news, Brienne's going to get Jamie to King's Landing. Bad news, she won't be coming back with Catelyn's daughters. Good news, Catelyn's younger sons aren't actually dead. Bad news, her oldest son is about to be. The rain keeps getting worse, coincidentally just like in the Arya chapters, slowing everyone down and shutting everyone up. Catelyn rides with Mage and Daisy Mormont, who have basically been Catelyn's only friends ever since she set Jaime free. Both Mormont women dress as warriors, and more comfortably so than Brienne ever could. I have fought beside the young wolf in every battle, Daisy Mormont said cheerfully. He's not lost one yet. No, but he has lost everything else, Catelyn thought, but it would not do to say it aloud. The Northmen did not lack for courage, but they were far from home, with little enough to sustain them but for their faith in their young king. That faith must be protected at all costs. I must be strong, she told herself. I must be strong for Rob. If I despair, my grief will consume me. Everything would turn on this marriage. If Edmure and Rosalind were happy in one another, if the late Lord Frey could be appeased and his power once more wedded to Rob's, even then, what chance will we have caught between Lannister and Greyjoy? It was a question Catelyn dared not dwell on, though Rob dwelt on little else. She saw how he studied his maps whenever they made camp, searching for some plan that might win back the north. Rob, good news. You don't have to worry too much about that battle strategy. Wouldn't worry about it at all, buddy. Edmure, meanwhile, is focused on the important questions, like how much of a smoke show his wife will be. Hopefully she won't look like your dad, Walder. Catelyn points out that, you know, Cersei is sexy, which shows what that's worth. He'd be better off hoping for a wife who's strong, smart, and above all, loyal. Edmure, naturally, is insulted by the idea that he should be focused on any quality other than hotness, so he starts hanging out with his sycophantic little friends instead. Catelyn regrets her snark. She understands what it's like to want your life partner to be easy on the eyes. She wanted the same thing, back when she was engaged to world historical heartbreaker Brandon Stark, only for him to get swapped out at the altar for his beta brother Ned, who was always a little distant, even in bed. We made Rob that night, though. We made a king together. And after the war at Winterfell, I had love enough for any woman. Once I found the good sweetheart beneath Ned's solemn face, there was no reason Edmure should not find the same with his Rosalind. Well said, Catelyn. Of course, Ned's dad didn't kill your relatives at dinner, so the comparison falls apart there, but hey, every couple faces obstacles. Their route takes them right back through the Whispering Wood, where Rob won his first battle. Catelyn gives credit to the gods for the coincidence. I personally blame George's love of narrative symmetry, but hey, I don't want to insult anyone's faith. Catelyn recalls how much better things were back when Rob was, you know, winning. It was warmer, the trees were green, the trees were green, the rivers knew their fucking business and didn't overflow in everyone's way. Fallen leaves swell the waters now, 
and the trees are all rusty brown. More than the trees have died since then, she reflected. On the night of the Whispering Wood, Ned was still alive in his cell beneath Egon's high hill. Bran and Rickon were safe behind the walls of Winterfell, and Theon Greyjoy fought at Rob's side, and boasted of how he had almost crossed swords with the Kingslayer. Would that he had. If Theon had died in place of Lord Karstark's sons, how much ale would have been undone? Interesting thought experiment, Catelyn. As it turns out, Theon also wishes he'd died here, so at least you finally agree on something. <laughs> As they ride, Catelyn sees the battle's leftovers everywhere. A helm, a lance, a horse's bones. Oh, and some people bones too. Lots of them. It makes Catelyn wonder about dead Ned's own spooky scary skeleton. Had it ever reached Winterfell? I don't know. Ask Barbary Dustin if George has come up with her yet. Even surrounded by thousands of her son's followers, Catelyn feels alone. All the more so with every mile she gets farther from River Run. She's pretty sure she'll never go home again. Well, you might get to, Cap, but um, I don't think you'll be as welcome there as you used to be. Just a hunch. Remember those rising waters from earlier? Welp, the Stark Scouts report that they've washed out the bridge they intended to take over the Blue Fork, plus the backup bridge at Old Stones. Westeros infrastructure is somehow in worse shape than ours. If we cannot cross the Blue Fork, we'll have to go around it, through seven streams in Hagsmire. Bogs and bad roads, or none at all, warned Edmure. The going will be slow, but we'll get there, I suppose. Lord Walder will wait, I'm sure, said Rob. Lothar sent him a bird from Riverrun. He knows we are coming. Yes, but the man is prickly and suspicious by nature, said Catelyn. He may take this delay as a deliberate insult. Very well. I'll beg his pardon for our tardiness as well. A sorry king I'll be, apologizing with every second breath. Rob made a wry face. Yeah, Rob, practice that shit-eating grin while you can, buddy. You're really gonna need it. Rob mentions that he's planning to join forces with Roose Bolton at the Twins. Catelyn asks where they'll be going. North, is all Rob says. Catelyn keeps digging, hoping for multiple words, maybe even a whole sentence. But Rob keeps mum, so to speak. They reach Old Stones over a week of rain later. Just kill them already, just put them out of their misery. They make camp in the castle of the ancient River Kings. Or what's left of it anyway, which is basically nothing. Yet in the center of what once would have been the castle's yard, a great carved sepulcher still rested, half hidden in waist-high brown grass amongst a stand of ash. The lid of the sepulcher had been carved into a likeness of the man whose bones lay beneath, but the rain and the wind had done their work. The king had worn a beard, they could see, but otherwise his face was smooth and featureless with only vague suggestions of a mouth, a nose, eyes, and the crown about the temples. His hands folded over the shaft of a stone warhammer that lay upon his chest. Once the warhammer would have been carved with runes that told its name and history, but all that the centuries had worn away. The stone itself was cracked and crumbling at the corners, discolored here and there by spreading white splotches of lichen, while wild roses crept up over the king's feet almost to his chest. It was there that Catelyn found Rob, standing somber in the gathering dusk with only grey wind beside him. The rain had stopped for once, and he was bareheaded. Does this castle have a name? He asked quietly when she came up to him. Old Stones, all the small folk called it when I was a girl, but no doubt it had some other name when it was still a hall of kings. She had camped here once with her father, on their way to Seaguard. Peter was with us, too. There's a song, he remembered. Jenny of Old Stones with the flowers in her hair. We're all just songs in the end, if we are lucky. Just had to read that. Favorite part of the chapter. Beautiful stuff. Catelyn remembers pretend playing as Jenny with young Littlefinger as the Prince of Dragonflies. Oh, but they were kids, she thinks. Yeah, don't worry, Cat. He certainly didn't get any ideas from that. 
Rob wonders whose grave this is. Catelyn recalls from the tales her father told that this was Christopher IV, of the proud name of Mud. The Muds used to rule the Riverlands back in the days of the First Men, until seven Andal kings teamed up against them. Even Christopher, the mighty Hammer of Justice who had won 99 battles, lost that one, magic number seven being what it is. Christopher number five turned out to be a dud, and the Andals soon ruled the roost here as they did everywhere else, south of the neck, that is. Rob has been worrying about his own succession. He and Jane have been doing their duty, aka fucking like rabbits, but he doesn't think he left her pregnant with an heir. Catelyn says it doesn't always happen the first time, although she thinks it did with Rob. We get it, Cat. No one will ever compare to your perfect womb and dead Ned's hero sperm. That's just the recipe for a protagonist. We get it. Rob points out that while Sansa is currently his legal heir, they can't let that stay now that Sansa's got her own, somewhat less happy marriage with Tyrion. Catelyn agrees. Rob needs an heir. How about our distant cousins in the Vale? You know, the Corbrays who always bring that shitty potato salad to every reunion. Mother? There was a sharpness in Rob's tone. You forget. My father had four sons. She had not forgotten. She had not wanted to look at it. Yet there it was. A snow is not a stark. John's more a stark than some lordlings from the Vale who have never so much as set eyes on Winterfell. John is a brother of the Night's Watch, sworn to take no wife and hold no lands. Those who take the Black serve for life. So do the Knights of the Kingsguard. That did not stop the Lannisters from stripping the white cloaks from Sir Barristan Selmy and Sir Boros Blount when they had no more use for them. If I send the Watch a hundred men in John's place, I'll wager they find some way to release him from his vows. He is set on this. Catelyn knew how stubborn her son could be. A bastard cannot inherit. Not unless he's legitimized by a royal decree, said Rob. There is more precedent for that than for releasing a sworn brother from his oath. Precedent, she said bitterly. Yes, Aegon IV legitimized all his bastards on his deathbed. And how much pain, grief, war, and murder grew from that. I know you trust, John. But can you trust his sons? Or their sons? The Blackfire pretenders troubled the Targaryens for five generations, until Barristan the Bold slew the last of them on the Stepstones. If you make John legitimate, there is no way to turn him bastard again. Should he wed and breed, any sons you may have by Jane will never be safe. John would never harm a son of mine. No more than Theon Greyjoy would harm Bran or Rickon. Oh shit, Catelyn. Actually, Theon didn't do that, but he wanted to, so eh, I'll give it to you. Grey Wind is pretty pissed off about that last remark, and so is Rob. Catelyn tries to press her case, but when she mentions Arya, Rob snaps back. Arya is dead. Again, no, but it's a reasonable conclusion given what you know. Point to Rob, gavel gavel. John is the only brother that remains to me. Should I die without issue, I want him to succeed me as king in the north. I had hoped you would support my choice. I cannot, she said, and all else, Rob. In everything, but not in this, this folly. Do not ask it. I don't have to. I'm the king. Rob turned and walked off, gray wind bounding down from the tomb and loping after him. What have I done? Catelyn thought wearily as she stood alone by Christopher Stone's sepulcher. First I anger Edmure, and now Rob, but all I have done is speak the truth. Are men so fragile they cannot bear to hear it? I mean, yes, that's true, but were you telling the truth, though? Okay, points to everyone, or no one, let's call it a tie. The days keep on going, the rain keeps on coming, Rob keeps on ignoring her, and when Mage Mormont asks if anything's wrong, Catelyn wonders if anything's right. Her loved ones are either dying on her or sulking. Out loud, she blames the rain, for dragging down their spirits just when they need them at their highest. 
Stacey Mormont chimes in to say she'd rather face literal rain than a rain of arrows. Come on now, folks. You're just spitting in George's face and begging him to kill you at this point. Catelyn can't help but be cheered up a little by the Mormont's courage, asking them if all Bear Island women are such badasses. Yep, they have to be. Bear Island is unlucky enough to be caught between the Ironborn to the south and the Wildlings to the north. When the men are away fishing, or slavin' in Jorah's case, the women have to fight to defend the children. There's even a carving on their gate honoring the warrior women of Bear Island, showing a woman with a child in one hand and a battle axe in the other. I love that. We need a Bear Island chapter, George, so I can see it. Invent a reason to send Davos there, or give us a Lyanna Mormont POV, something. Anyway, the bride Jorah brought home from the south was the total opposite of that she-bear. Lyness Hightower had golden hair and creamy skin, but she didn't have the hands for an axe, nor the titties for breastfeeding, says Mage. Thank you for sharing, Mage. Catelyn remembers Lyness. She and Jorah had come to stay at Winterfell for a couple weeks once, and one night Lyness got wasted and let slip to Catelyn that the North was too cold, bitter, and just boring for an old town girl. Catelyn said she'd felt the same way once, but had found much to love here. Well, Cat, you married Ned, and she married Jorah. That might be the big difference there. Anyway, everything Catelyn fell in love with is gone. Winterfell, her husband, her children. Only Rob is left. Maybe Catelyn had more in common with Lyness than she knew. If only she'd had that battle axe to protect them better. I'm picturing Lady Stoneheart trying to lift a huge axe, falling over, and deciding the noose is really more her style. <laughs> hey, remember the rain? Still happening. But something major does change when Jason Malister catches up to them. Catelyn admires Malister's zaddy face for a while before noticing he's brought someone a lot less sexy with him. Rob introduces the newcomer as the captain of the Miraham, which might just sound familiar. My last port of call for Seaguard. That was Lord Sport on Pike. The Ironmen kept me there more than half a year, they did. King Balon's command. Only, well, the long and short of it is he's dead. Balon Greyjoy. Catelyn's heart skipped a beat. You are telling us that Balon Greyjoy is dead. The shabby little captain nodded. You know how Pike's built on a headland, and part on rocks and islands off the shore with bridges between. The way I heard it in Lordsport, there was a blow coming in from the west, rain and thunder, and old King Balin was crossing one of them bridges when the wind got hold of it, just tore the thing to pieces. It washed up two days later, all bloated and broken. Crabs ate his eyes, I hear. The great John laughed. King Crabs, I hope, to sip upon such royal jelly, eh? The captain bobbed his head. Aye, but that's not all of it, no. He leaned forward. The brother's back. Victorian? asked Galbert Clever, surprised. You're on. Crow's Eye, they call him, as black a pirate as ever raised a sail. He's been gone for years, but Lord Balin was no sooner cold than there he was, sailing into Lordsport in his silence. Black sails and a red hull, and crewed by mutes. He'd been to his shy and back, I heard. Wherever he was, though, he's home now, and he marched right into Pike and set his arse in the sea stone chair, and drowned Lord Botley in a cask of seawater when he objected. That was when I ran back to Miraham and slipped anchor, hoping I could get away whilst things were confused. And so I did, and here I am. Oh, well, that's just very sad news about Balin. What a pity. Thoughts and prayers. Wait a minute. Did someone say you're on? My boyfriend's back, and you're gonna be in trouble. Hey, la. Forgive me. Forgive me. I promise not to sing too much. Just enough. As soon as the captain leaves, the great John bursts into laughter. But Rob, using only his eyes, tells him to shut up. You're on is no laughing matter. From what Theon told Rob, the crow's eye is not exactly someone you want to see in charge. Rob says that Theon himself is the rightful heir to the Seastone Chair, but no one seems to know what happened to him. Hmm, how about that? And anyway, there are other Greyjoys around to challenge Euron for control. 
Asha, currently at Deepwood Mott, and Victarion, currently camped at Moat Kalen with the men of the Iron Fleet. They will presumably be sailing home soon. And so Rob comes up with a new master plan on the spot. He orders Jason Malister to send two ships sailing for Greywater Watch, flying Rob's banner so the Cranog men can find them. The ships will bear Mage Mormont and Galbert Glover, respectively. They'll be carrying false orders in case the Ironborn capture them. Their real orders are to pass Rob's plan to take Moat Kaelin onto Howland Reed. Hold on, he wants to take Moat Kaelin? We have been repeatedly told that's impossible. So it is, Rob admits, from the south. But if the Cranogmen can help move part of his army through the swamps using passageways only they know about, Rob can attack the moat from multiple directions at once, including the north, where it's vulnerable. The Great John's on board, and so am I. I love this plan, I'm excited to be a part of it. Finally, Rob turns to Catelyn, telling her that the journey is too dangerous for her, so after the wedding, she'll be turning aside, to stay with the Malisters at Seaguard until the war is over. Catelyn can't decide what she's being punished for, disagreeing about Jon Snow, or just for being a woman, a mother, who dares open her mouth. Either way, Catelyn soon realizes that everyone else in the room knew this was coming. Although that's not surprising given how many of them she alienated by letting Jamie go. They can tell she's pissed off and try to mollify her by telling her it's for the best, she'll be an honored guest, but Cat has no patience for that polite bullshit, instead asking Rob if she can just go back home to Riverrun in that case. He refuses, saying he left Jane there and wants to spread out his treasures so no one can rob him. Fair point, Rob, but maybe pick any other metaphor next time. One more matter. Lord Balin has left chaos in his wake, we hope. I would not do the same. Yet I have no son as yet, my brothers Bran and Rickon are dead, and my sister is wed to a Lannister. I've thought long and hard about who might follow me. I command you now as my true and loyal lords to fix your seals to this document, as witnesses to my decision. A king indeed, Catelyn thought, defeated. She could only hope that the trap he'd planned for Moat Kaelin worked as well as the one in which he just caught her. And that is the synopsis for A Storm of Swords, Catelyn 5. So wh- what do you think of this one on the whole, Pat? I, I adore this chapter. Um, I'm, the, I'm the freak who loves setup. <laughs> so I uh same same I yeah uh so this is this is everything I love about George's writing and this is a very on reread this is almost the best part of the book for me hmm. because uh even though you know what's going to happen the anticipation still builds you still get hope that uh Rob's plan is going to work it's a good one <laughs> uh even though it does a big chunk of it is um just just go into the swamp, the the Kranich men will find you. Don't worry about it. <laughs> they got it from there. Just go yeah, find exactly. Yoda, do what Yoda says. Yeah, exactly. Uh and uh yeah, so I have almost nothing to complain about in this chapter. So <laughs> big fan, big fan. <laughs> well that was a cheery affair, no? <laughs> right, what a happy chapter. <laughs> it it definitely feels like Kat takes turns having the men in her life get mad at her, sometimes <laughs> deservingly, sometimes not. But you can't blame her. This chapter is as gloomy as the weather, a slog through the reality of what's left of Rob's campaign, of his kingdom. We've been figuratively on the road to the Red Wedding for a while, but now we are literally on that road, plus or minus a few detours due to bridges out of order and lines of secession not shored up. All of this is shaped by how it ends, how we know it ends on reread. But what makes the Red Wedding linger as more than a twist is the world it happens to. And this chapter is all about that world. A cause, an army, and a family on the brink of disillusion. 
It's a chapter about death, from Balin Greyjoy's fall to the tomb of Christopher to Ned's bones so far from home. But it's also a chapter about life and love. Jane riding after Rob for a last kiss, Daisy Mormont pledging herself to his service in spite of everything. The overall effect is nostalgia for a world that's about to pass away. One of those ghost stories where none of the ghosts realize they're dead. Not yet. It's a reckoning with how the glorious past keeps giving birth to the present in which everyone just seems to be disappointing each other, and themselves. Were the Starks doomed to this fate? Or did they bring it on themselves? As with anyone else, it's a mixture of both. The curse of it is that when you're in the middle of it, like Catelyn is, it's not really clear what's in your power and what isn't anymore. All you can do is keep going, riding into the storm. God bless the rains down in Castamere. <laughs> okay, maybe don't bless them, but the sympathetic nature really kicks into gear this chapter. After, after massive storms being teased in previous John, Bran, Arya, and Jamie chapters. The dark clouds that hung over them start their deluge properly here, and last nearly through Rob's march up to Hag's Mire. The rain almost subs in for dialogue, as Catelyn will later say, that the men only spoke when they needed to in the heavy rain, the pitter-patter of raindrops in lieu of the jests and boasts of soldiers. The rain is also going to pose logistical problems on the march, from preventing fording at flooded rivers or having to leave excess baggage and carts behind. Of course, it sets mood and tone, and of course, rain and tears go hand in hand, and of course, it also plays on the Reigns of Castamere motif that punctuates the Red Wedding. Oh, and of course, it also gives gravity to the storm in A Storm of Swords. As we'll talk about later with hostage ex exchange, politics, and potential battle plans, right now the story is wound tight around the pole that is the Red Wedding. All these disparate chapters featuring different characters are building to this one event, and while Storm isn't my favorite of the Song of Ice and Fire bo books, it's hard to deny this stretch of material is some of the tightest written stuff in the series. The structure is really what sells it. It's something you don't even necessarily consciously notice on your first read, or what do they say in Red Letter Media? Maybe you didn't notice, but your brain did. But it, it's so apparent on reread that all these Riverlands chapters are running together, like tributary streams into the Trident. There's a momentum to it, an acceleration that ramps up as Sandor takes off with Arya, and now Rob and Catelyn finally head out to the twins. The storm binds it all together, and you hit on why it works so well. It's both a literal and a figurative obstacle. It's this free-floating sense of dread, and also an organizational disaster taking up everyone's time and energy. George can't resist the symbolism of the rain and the atmosphere of it. Like you said, it stands in for Catelyn's tears, her peril and grief, as she puts it. But maybe he thought that would feel too obvious or kind of cheap on its own, so he also throws in more tangible issues like the bridges being washed out and Galbert Clever almost drowning trying to cross on his horse. I like that... Catelyn thinks, yeah, Galbert's fine, he's just not the Blackfish, and then immediately we hear Galbert almost got his ass drowned. Yeah, that does, does not sound like something the Blackfish would do. You can tell that George is really thinking through the structure of his tragedy here, because he has Catelyn talk directly about the storm as an instrument of fate. It's an evil storm, she says, this tangible harbinger of their doom. It saps their morale. It prevents everyone from getting together, singing songs about Rob, making bets about who's going to fight the hardest in the next battle. You know, all the things you do when you're a winning army. So now, maybe they don't feel like one. As Catelyn thinks, all they have to sustain them is their faith in Rob. She has to be strong, she thinks. They all do. And the rain only makes that harder. So Queen Jane must have visited the House of the Undying, where she received the prophecy, Three goodbyes you will know. 
one to bed and one to dread and one to uh, never mind. Can't be too hard on Jane, especially in retrospect, as the second and third goodbyes are her seeing Rob for the last time that she wouldn't have ha- she wouldn't have had had she not been so insistent. Perhaps she's also sensing the ba- bad vibes ahead of the wedding at the twins. Rob is both endeared and wroth at this, which I think sets the tone for this chapter. I called it a gloomy one, but there's a tension here. Anger with love, despair against hope, truth versus kindness. Rob feels two ways about Jane's goodbyes, just as Catelyn balances, or tries to anyway, giving good counsel to Rob and Edmer while also being a stern mother and sister. Or how the overall dreariness of this chapter gets a shot of hope at the end, with hints at a plan for Rob to reassert himself as King in the North. I'll come back to this when we get to that part of the chapter, because I think it's relevant to holding the tone of the story and making the Red Wedding shock hurt that much more. Yeah, this is a great character moment for both Rob and Jane, which is important because we don't spend that much time with Jane, and we need to get closer to Rob while we can for his death to really stick with us. And George made that hard on himself when he decided that Rob, unlike most of his siblings, would not be a POV character. He uses Catelyn to guide our understanding of what's going on in Rob's head. She just knows him that well. Rob's story is ultimately about how hard it is to be both a king and a man. The personal and the political are constantly interfering with each other. His own prisoner Jamie said it best, It's too much, because no matter what you do, you're breaking one oath or another. As a husband, Rob is touched that his wife loves him so much that she can't bear to be left behind. But as a king, he knows it doesn't look good for him that his lady wife refuses to obey his commands and keeps slowing up the march. Which is the true Rob? Both and neither. That's what makes it so hard on him. I instinctively side with the husband over the king. I'm a lover, not a fighter. But as Catelyn says, Rob's army needs to believe in him. It's not just about him. As for Jane, she's got that Lyanna energy here, riding off to follow her heart regardless of what the rules say. Remember how Ned described his sister? Willful, beautiful, and dead before her time. Could say the same for Jane. Certainly willful, certainly beautiful. Two is not three, as Stannis says, but I fear that third one will eventually come true as well. The dramatic irony on reread, of course, is that we know Jane just barely avoided getting killed at the twins here, like her show equivalent to Lisa. Also funny in a very dark way that Grey Wind is so eager to get going. As usual, the direwolves are external embodiments of the Stark's inner feelings. Grey Wind wants to get going because so does Rob, but they're both headed as quickly as possible to their deaths. Lothar Frey, as you'll recall from Cat 4, was the carrot half of the carrot and stick diplomats Walder Frey dispatched to Riverrun, and he's along for the ride here, keeping up his performance as an amiable fellow, jesting about Roslyn likely dancing to the tune of Lady Tully, Lady Tully, while having a poke at Edmure about his feelings, who is anything but good vibes at this hour. Yeah, that's, like I said in the synopsis, that, that is some ice-cold villain behavior from Lothar Frey here making everything sound so romantic and chivalric when he's the project manager of the Red Wedding. He knows damn well that Rosalind is horrified by all this. She cries through the wedding. She'll probably never get over being used like this, and he does not care. It's a great little example of something George comes back to over and over. The chivalric romance as a smokescreen, used to cover up uglier and more complicated realities. At the same time, I think part of what makes Song of Ice and Fire special is that he never ignores the allure of the image. Sandor spends all of A Clash of Kings telling Sansa there's no true knights, all the stories are lies, and then he offers to sweep her off her feet and take her away and never let anybody hurt her again. I think George is interested in the meeting point, where one way of looking at the world 
gives way to the other. It creates this uncanny feeling. Admir is more right than he knows when he compares his anxiety about getting married to the anxiety he felt before battle. His wedding will turn into a battle. The ideal of love sacrificed on the altar of the Game of Thrones. The topic of Jane is of course relevant to the, to their appearance at the Twins, which will not see the Queen in the North in tow. Catelyn properly summarizes the, de the decision for the reader. Either way, Walder Frey will take it as a slight, but her absence may stop Rob from doing something foolish. Oddly telling about the fragility of Westerosi patriarchy that one woman's presence can be such a wrench in it that it could totally undermine a tentative peace between a lord and a king. Walder Frey, of course, has some right in his animus towards Jane, but all the same. This is something I've talked about before, that George does a great job wrong-footing us regarding what's about to happen at the Twins. He doesn't pretend that Walder Frey is a nice guy who will just forgive Rob and everything will be okay. The first time Reader would be able to see through that, we, we, we've already seen Walder, we wouldn't be able to handle that, we'd be prepared for something awful to happen, it would kind of give away the game, it might lessen the impact. So instead, George just keeps reminding us that Walder is petty and obnoxious and prone to insulting people. So that's what we're expecting. Not a massacre, but a roast. We're even led to believe that the real threat is Rob losing his temper if Walder insults Jane. And that's a great detail because it reminds us that Rob, with his warrior spirit, is not immune to the violent pride that motivates the phrase. Yet for all of Kat's wisdom about Jane, Rob doesn't love his mother anymore for it. In the less than cherry storm Catelyn chapters, Jane has been one of the few bright spots in Rob's life, as is some of her family as well. But of the Westerlings and Spicers, only Sir Reynald stays with Rob for this trip. Rolf Spicer manages an exchange of hostages, while Lady Westerling keeps watch over the rest at River Run. Lady Westerling, aka Sybil Spicer, and her brother Rolf are the ones who work the phones with Tywin on this red wedding business. Sybil's husband, Gawain, was captured at the Whispering Woods and remained a prisoner at Seaguard until af and remains a prisoner at Seaguard until after the events of the Red Wedding. For the purposes of illusion, it wouldn't make any sense for the kids to be in the know about the Red Wedding. Their earnest performances of love and admiration for Rob would only be to the Lannister and Frey's benefit. It reminds me of Wyla Manderly in Davos 3 a bit, her, from A Dance with Dragons. Her impassioned pleas in favor of how Stark were earnest, but in that situation, having someone push back against Lannister Frey hegemony gave the whole mummer's farce a little more credibility than if it was just the Manderleys reading the King's Landing talking points. I, I love that point about Westerosi patriarchy, Manu. Uh, last week, you folks discussed how George uses the Jamie-Brienne relationship to play with gender roles. Uh, and in this chapter, George explores Westerosi womanhood, its complexities and its, perform uh, and its performance. And we're going to get to the she-bears. Uh, and in patriarchal Westeros, women are an extension of their closest male relative, whether that's father, brother, or husband. Jane didn't break a betrothal with the phrase. She fell in love with the young, hot warrior king who was recovering from grievous physical and emotional wounds, aka what anyone with a pulse would do. <laughs> Yet her presence would be an insult. It's hardly fair. But Caitlin, uh, Caitlin, Catelyn is only half, uh, half right in thinking that Rob is angry with her for telling him hard truths. In Westeros, noble ladies rule as much as men, just usually in the background. They not only run the estates, they play politics, they give counsel to their lord husbands, even give commands to their lord's bannermen in a pinch. Jane doesn't do any of these things for Rob. Catelyn does. She's the queen in the north in all but name. 
Yes, circumstances of the marriage and its newness would affect Jane's political power, but mostly it's because Catelyn hasn't stepped aside. It hasn't even occurred to her to do so. This has to rankle mm-hmm. Rob, and is probably one of the reasons for his plans for Catelyn post-Red Wedding. That's a great point. And yeah, there are a number of reasons why Jane isn't filling that position right now. She's young, she's from the hated Westerlands, she's very busy taking the royal dick several times a day. Mm-hmm. But it's also because Catelyn is already there, doing the job, and has no intention of stepping aside. I like what you said there. Yeah, I don't think it's even occurred to her that maybe she should be bringing Jane into the council like that. Never even crossed Catelyn's head. Again, it's all about the conflict between the different roles you play, the different masks you wear. Rob knows Catelyn is right in political terms, but he resents her for it, in personal terms. Because the Westerlings are the only ones who don't treat him like the untouchable warrior king, the young wolf. They just love Rob. And Catelyn isn't only Rob's chief advisor. She's his mother, and he feels emasculated by her, it's pretty clear. As George said, he wanted to explore King Arthur's mother as a POV rather than King Arthur himself. And so we get this really rich sense of family relationships, struggling not because of a lack of love, which is what we see with the Lannisters, but because of an abundance of love. Different kinds of love coming into conflict with each other. The Westerlings and Spicers are not the only people of note left behind at River Run. The Blackfish remains as well, to hold fort and protect the Queen under his new title of the Warden of the Southern Marches. Brynden has been a staple of Caitlin Jesus, now I'm doing that. Brynden <laughs> has been a staple of Catelyn chapters since Cat 4, a Game of Thrones, and his gruff and surly presence will be missed until Jamie shows up at River Run in A Feast for Crows. On a personal level, Brynden staying back is another point of isolation for Catelyn, though this one is more physical separation. Her exchanges with Edmure and Rob in this chapter are less than cordial, or at least as cordial as they normally are, but even when that happened in previous chapters, the Blackfish was there to be a warm hug and ready ears for Lady Stark. That comfort, like all others, are now lost to her. On a political level, Rob is creating new offices and positions as he tries to find balance between the River Lords and Northerners that comprise his kingdom. If Rob were to return north and make Winterfell his seat, he would need people he can trust ruling in the Riverlands, as they would be far more prone to attacks from the Iron Throne than the northern half, which would require some level of invasion by sea. The Blackfish is the most stalwart of the Riverlords, so he makes total sense. Many of the other Riverlords will be returning to their keeps as well, to best be prepared for any Lannister reprisals. Like you say, it's the personal and political butting heads again. The Blackfish has these personal connections to his nieces and nephew, and unlike his brother Hoster, he is unwilling to subordinate those connections for political expedience. Remember how he reacted to Catelyn setting Jaime free, came right up to her in front of everyone, gave her a big hug, didn't care who saw him. But Rob needs to leave him behind. He needs the Blackfish to run the Riverlands. Because yeah, a tension that's been running under the surface of Rob's campaign has finally broken through to the surface. He is a Stark, fighting a war mostly in Tully territory. It helps that he's half Tully, that Rob actually looks more Tully than Stark, but ultimately Winterfell is his home, that's where he's going in peacetime, not River Run, where he was crowned. In the long run, I think this would have doomed his kingdom, even if the Red Wedding never happened. Rob, I think, could have probably kept the North independent if he'd made it back in one piece, because the choke point of Moat Caelan does keep southern armies from invading. That's how the Andals kept the First Men at bay, and ironically, it's how the Ironborn intend on preventing Rob from coming home. I think the Lannisters, yeah, I don't think they could have pulled the same trick in the neck that Rob is going to try to do, so yeah, they'd probably have to attack White Harbor, and even that, that would be difficult. But the Riverlands? They're the most geographically vulnerable part of Westeros. 
I doubt that even a great general like the Blackfish would be able to hold off simultaneous invasions from the west and the east and the south. So if I were a random lord in the Riverlands, if I was Lord Vance or Lord Piper or one of those guys, I might feel like Rob was abandoning me to the Lannisters. George doesn't really get into that dynamic because the Red Wedding kind of makes the point moot, but it does make a big difference that Rob only has the Northmen with him on this march, because that keeps his numbers low enough for Roose Bolton and the Freys to wipe them all out. Speaking of those numbers, George gives a fairly detailed accounting of Rob's men on the march north, about 3,500 in total. Galbert Glover has taken over the scouting and outriding from the Blackfish, the Great John leads the van, Wendell Manderly watches the baggage train, while Robin Flint brings up the rearguard. Catelyn muses that there are no enemies to their back to challenge the rearguard, which works as a bit of foreshadowing as Rob is going to be stabbed in the back at the wedding by his own men, figuratively if not literally. This detailed record of his men does serve purpose. It highlights people we should keep track of, whether in relation to who survives the Red Wedding and who doesn't, but also because this is a sizable military force that is about to be scattered to the wind. The Great John is still captive at the Twins as of time of this recording, and Willis Manderly will be integral to Wyman's scheming in A Dance with Dragons. It also does act as a sort of red herring. Usually detailed information about armies precede big battles, like the one Rob will tease at the end of this chapter. By keeping our attention on that and not the wedding, George can build us up for that devastation. For Catelyn, the march north is a march towards ghosts, of a life long gone. A ruined castle without her husband or her children. Can't really blame her for being a Debbie Downer, while the other men will at least be galvanized by war strategizing, Catelyn has no hook to hang her hat on. It's all just dread all the way down. There's a great sense here of, of an army on the march, all, all the different moving parts you need and someone who has to be in charge of each one. It's a lot like Stannis' campaign marching through the Wolfswood from Deepwood Mott to Winterfell in A Dance with Dragons, that great Asha chapter of the King's Prize, very similar structure to it. And I love the way George describes this army. 3,500 they were, 3,500 who had been blooded in the Whispering Wood, who had reddened their swords at the Battle of the Camps at Oxcross and so on. It's got that, that great rhythm to it, like how Homer describes armies in the Iliad, these figures out of legend with all their different battles to sing of, only after they're gone. And it's great how George creates this impression of strength by listing off all their victories, and then immediately undercuts it by Catelyn thinking about her empty castle and her dead sons. That's what her POV adds to this whole story. She's not just headed towards ghosts, she's surrounded by them. Again, the great irony, Bran and Rickon are actually alive, but very soon, none of these warriors will be. So then her thoughts drift to Brienne, who is making her way out of a bear pit right around now. Warrior women and bears, that sounds like a perfect segue into talking about the ladies Mormont, Mage and her daughter Daisy. They've become Catelyn's road trip besties, in part because they sympathized with her Jamie Lannister gambit more than the other men. And it's not tough to determine why. Under the patriarchal system, daughters are not prized as much as sons, and much less so than martial men like Jamie. Though I must add, there are no men like Jamie. <laughs> but the women of Mormont are not so bound up in gender exclusion like other houses. Their thoughts align closer to that of the wildlings, which is a tad ironic because it was the raiding by the wildlings and the ironborn that shaped the women of House Mormont into what they are. While I would never claim war and raids are a proper form of cultural exchange, people often tend to become more like their supposed enemies over time, whether it's adapting, assimilating, or subsuming practices, which underlines the key point to the folly of war. We're all basically the same. 
And that's something George comes back to in A Dance with Dragons, and again, that the chapter I just mentioned, The King's Prize, when we meet Alisanne Mormont from Asha's POV. Asha's getting along with her at first, until Alisanne reminds her that the only reason they have so much in common is because of how long they've been fighting each other. The Mormonts, like Brienne, are more at home in armor and chainmail than the sorts of clothes normally required for women to perform their gender. But unlike Brienne, they seem more comfortable in it. For Brienne, rebelling against the cage of gender was an aberration to those around her, out of the norm for a daughter of a southern lord. Meanwhile, the Mormons have had to make soldiers of their women for generations, which will have considerable effect. There is institutional acceptance and know-how here, whereas it seems Brienne, Selwyn of Tarth, and their master-at-arms had to come up with solutions on the fly. And the comparison be, uh, between Brienne and the Mormons is so pointed, too. Uh, Daisy and Lady uh, Mage seem more comfortable, both as warriors and women, than ever the girl from Tarth had been. As you said, Manu, the history of violence on Bear Island has changed the concept of a woman. Daisy and Lady Mage are more comfortable than Brienne because they're performing womanhood in the ways expected of them. They need to be warriors and wet nurses in one. As demonstrated later in the chapter when they insult Liness on Bear Island, it's the Southron, uh, Southron lady in her silks and in her quiet graces uh, that's out of place. Yeah, that's the interesting twist here. While the Mormont women are more accepting of women defying traditional gender norms, they clearly hated Liness. And it's not only because she was so out of place on Bear Island, it's also because Mage thinks Liness's titties were too tiny to do the all-important job of breastfeeding. So Liness was in the worst of all possible worlds here. She was judged for being too much of a traditional lady for Bear Island, and also judged for not being able to perform the role of a traditional lady. Catelyn has similar thoughts about Rosalind Frey in her next chapter. Oh, you're too skinny. That's no good for child-rearing, and child-rearing is what you're for. Part of what's going on here is a conflict between beauty standards and the physical challenges of pregnancy and breastfeeding. Jorah fell for Liness because of her beauty, in the same way Edmure is fixated on Rosalind's looks. Catelyn is more concerned with what she thinks of as practical matters. But neither Jorah nor Mage actually seemed to care about Liness the person. Only Catelyn took note of how miserable she was. Catelyn reassured Liness that she could assimilate. Catelyn herself did that, a Tully from the Riverlands who came to live in Winterfell. But did she really? The very first line of her very first chapter is Catelyn had never liked this godswood. The only one of her children who looks like a Stark is Arya, the child with whom Catelyn has the most difficult relationship. Maybe she's still not a northerner. No place for her at the table. Which is ironically exactly how Jon feels. Catelyn is being unfair to herself when she says she might have been able to defend her children better if she was more tough and badass like the Mormonts. She did fight to the death to save Bran's life, and she set Jaime free to try and get her daughters back safely. I don't think anything would have really changed if she'd been brought up to fight like the Mormonts. Maybe she would have killed more people at the twins, but that's just about it. Catelyn is catastrophizing, something her and Rob both do a lot. Their depression and anxiety lead them to blame themselves for everything, including things that are just out of their control. In both cases, it's all caught up in gender performance. Rob can't just focus on his feelings for Jane or his dead brothers because he has to look the part of a proper manly warrior king. And Catelyn increasingly fears she just hasn't been the right kind of woman. Maybe that's why the men aren't listening to me. She's caught in between Liness Hightower and Mage Mormont, between her childhood in Riverrun and her adulthood in Winterfell. Catelyn isn't sure who she is anymore, who she's supposed to be, where she belongs, and she can't help but envy people who at least seem to have it all figured out. 
One thing I noted in this chapter is the amount of italicized text. No, I'm not insane enough to actually determine if this chapter has more italicized text than others, but Callan is thinking aloud to herself quite a bit in this chapter, perhaps speaking to her isolation because she has no one else to talk to but herself. Blackfish is gone, Rob is busy, and Edmir is too consumed with creeping on Rosalind Frey's Instagram profile. If I despair, <laughs> grief will consume me, she thinks, in the same cadence that Daenerys thinks, if I look back, I am lost. That very grief sharpens her words against Edmir. After all this time, after all she's lost, she can't handle the young men worrying about a pretty face. A pretty face executing a coup is exactly how Catelyn wound up a widow. And from there, Edmir avoids his elder sister even more, furthering our point of view's alienation. This stirs memories of Ned within her, at the plainer, sullen, bargain bin Brandon Stark she married long ago. But despite her initial disappointment, they grew to love each other and raised a king in their own right. These thoughts of Ned will be something to track in our last couple cat chapters, as her very last thoughts before stoneheartification will be about Ned loving her hair. Remember back in A Clash of Kings when Catelyn first heard that Bran and Rickon were dead? It was just her, Brienne, and eventually Jaime in that chapter. She felt free to break down because she didn't have to perform for anyone. Now we're seeing what grieving in public is like. Spoiler alert, it sucks. There's that bit where Mage Mormont asks, is aught amiss? And Catelyn thinks, yeah, fucking everything is amiss. I'm surrounded by death. George flips this around on us at the Purple Wedding when Tyrion, our POV in the situation, asks Sansa that same question, is aught amiss? And immediately feels stupid for asking. Her family's gone and she's married to me, is aught amiss? But hey, what else can you do? It's not like Mage can make all that better for Catelyn. What should she do instead? Say nothing? So much of this chapter is about feeling alone in a crowd. As Catelyn thinks, 3,500 of us, and yet I feel so lonely. George is mostly drawing from gothic tragedy for these Catelyn Storm of Swords chapters, but it also kind of feels like a high society story by Edith Wharton, all about repression and the things you can't say. There's a great quote from uh, The House of Mirth that I think works for Catelyn here. Half the trouble in life is caused by pretending there isn't any. And that feeds into the complexity of Catelyn's relationship with little baby brother Edmure. She is right that there are more important things in marriage than how hot your partner is. I do love that she points out that, yes, Cersei's a smoke show, prettiest woman in Westeros, but that doesn't mean you'd want to be married to her, right? But I also love how Catelyn comes to regret it later. She empathizes with Edmure, because while it might be shallow to focus that much on looks, it's still pretty much universal. We have sexual desires and we want them fulfilled. Catelyn might know better, but that didn't stop her from having these same feelings when she lost out on marrying the dreamy Brandon Stark and had to walk down the aisle with his extremely mid-brother Ned instead. They fell in love gradually. Not like it happens in the songs and the stories, but more like how it often happens in real life. Catelyn's POV is so rich because she feels like a real person. She wants Edmure to grow up already, and to be fair, he is older than Catelyn was when she got married. Edmure is a grown-ass man, and he is definitely immature for his age. But just like Rob's soldiers, he needs something to believe in here. He's scared. And the reality is that adults get scared just like children do. I think most of us, at some level, grow to resent the child we were, when our problems were, for most of us, easier to solve or just ignore. Catelyn wants Edmure to be more mature, but she also wishes that she could be less mature, that she didn't have to shoulder all these burdens and could go back to the day when she was just Jenny of Old Stones with the flowers in her hair. 
The column passes through the Whispering Wood, Rob's first real battle and victory. Revisiting old locations has been a common theme in these last couple chapters. Arya goes back to High Heart, or Jamie passing through the villages he had when he left Lord Wentz Tourney many years ago. It creates a sense of going over worn ground. Even John and Bran sharing time at Queen's Crown together adds to the sensation. The Red Wedding is a culmination of the first act of A Song of Ice and Fire, and these brief hints at journeys we've already taken, battles we've already fought, builds that sense of culmination, that this is paying off two and two-thirds of the book that we've already read. And to that end, Catelyn observes what that familiar ground looks like now. Dead trees and fallen leaves peppered with blood and rust. This is what the future holds, the feast for crows that will come after the red and purple weddings. Yeah, that's great. I I love the imagery here. The ruin, the rust, the decay, the comparison of the dying leaves to blood. It makes this once glorious battlefield seem like what it is, a mass grave. And nothing has really changed here except time. It's a memento mori. Remember, you will die. Death is natural, part of the cycle of life just like birth. The leaves fall from the trees every year. That doesn't mean the gods have it in for you, that's just how it goes. (laughs) What's really rotten in the state of Westeros is that the seasons last too long. Winter lasts years, and the others threaten to make it permanent. George emphasizes the trees here for a reason. The Northmen are always associated with trees due to their religion. So if the trees are dying, well, the Northmen might be about to die too. In thinking about how things have changed, Catelyn remembers Theon Greyjoy bragging about almost fighting Jaime. Which, I wasn't there for that cat chapter, But of course Theon Greyjoy would boast about almost fighting someone. (laughs) This close, we came this close. (laughs) But I do want to zoom in briefly on Kat's sentiment, how much ill would have been undone, for just a moment, for a quick tangent. The Red Wedding is inevitable, because this is George's story and his thumb is on the scale. But actual history, in our real world, is anything but. I don't want to go full butterfly theory here, But history isn't this long, drown-out march to a specific endpoint, be it progress or otherwise. The systems around us aren't the way things have to be. Had FDR not died when he did, or had the Supreme Court not thrown the 2000 election to Bush too, with no resistance from the Democrats, had the infernal machine blown up Napoleon, the world we live in could be very different places. And those are just three of literally infinite inflection points of our own country's history, much less those all over the rest of the world. History, instead, is a messy battle of ideas and communities over time, most often fueled by class, but also by nationalism, religion. What wins and loses isn't about the best ideas, or the most humane ideas. Usually it's the idea with the most force behind it, and sometimes it's just luck, too. All that's to say, the world we are living in now, with its Byzantine set of institutions meant to keep the working class desperate and the elite comfortable, this isn't how it had to be. And if you have the imagination to picture something better, something different, that's a huge win against the status quo, which wants you to think the current paradigm is the only paradigm possible. I'm just going to jump in with my favorite quote from the late, great uh, Ursula K. Le Guin, uh, which is... um, uh, capitalism seems inevitable, but so did the divine right of kings. <laughs> and or uh, I, and that's a a paraphrase more than the actual thing. Uh, and yeah, I completely agree. She was a queen, and uh, I think George is. 
I don't, although I don't think he talks about it as openly, is clearly uh, expanding on that second part of the quote, which is, art is where we can explore the alternatives and show that there is another path. Excellently said. Floods and broken bridges turn the trajectory of the column. They turn north towards Old Stones, hoping to cross beyond that near Hag's Mire. Roos Bolton, Rob's ever-reliable vassal, is on the right side of the river and should get to the twins in proper time, ahead of his king. Surely Roos and Walder will have things they can talk about as they await the delayed start caravan. <laughs> lots, lots of details to go over, lots of logistics to manage. And yeah, I love, love the irony that Catalan is, is missing River Run in this chapter, wants to go back, while those same rivers are hemming them in, overflowing their banks, swollen as if with blood. And we get to her next chapter, and it's and the, the Arya chapter's right around it, and the, the river's described as growling like a lion in its den. So even though these are the rivers she loves, it's like they're working for Tywin now. That's what it feels like. Old Stones is a ruined, abandoned village and stronghold, which gives it a coherence of setting over many of the last chapters. Bran and John intersected at a ruined village. Jamie and Arya have visited several in their last chapters. Even Sam next time will come across White Tree. Maybe. <laughs> Despite all these point of views being in mostly disparate locations, it feels like the characters are trudging through the same devastations, whether it's wars of yesteryear or the wars of now. It sustains mood and tone, and it feels like all our characters are marching into the jaws of defeat, even if it's only Rob and Catelyn and their host. So Old Stones is described as a ruined stronghold of ancient river kings, and my, could there not be a better metaphor for King Rob? The king in the north, despite the title, won his victories in the Riverlands, was crowned in the Riverlands, and will eventually fall in the Riverlands, much like Emmett described earlier. His legacy is as much a river king as a northern one, especially since he lost the north halfway through his campaign. A ruined stronghold could also be a metaphor for Winterfell. Cat describing the foundations even reminds me of Winterfell, at least in terms of how Bran describes it on his exit in A Clash of Kings. The sepulchre at Old Stones is also making me think of the Winterfell crypts. Even Rob and Grey Wind stand over it in a statuesque manner, as if they were posing for their own effigies in the ancestral Stark basement. The face of the King Ear has been worn down to featurelessness, not unlike the oldest statues down in the Winterfell crypts. The Warhammer in the King's Embrace will have everyone thinking of Robert Baratheon, whom our own King Rob is named after. The monuments we built to honor the dead, to stand the test of time, will all eventually erode too, washed away like tears and rain. There is something ominous in that, heading into the Red Wedding. For the first time, reader, the Red Wedding is an inflection point of the Stark narrative, where the fate of the family is terminal after a crushing defeat. Old Stones is a possible future for the Starks of Winterfell. If we weren't anticipating a time for wolves in the winds of spring, House Stark was not far from the fate of House Mud. The bit about the smoothed-over, forgotten face also reminds me of Arya Seven, A Storm of Swords, when she was having trouble remembering the faces of the people on her kill list, the people who had significantly harmed her and her family. In the end, time wins. Perhaps the notion that we can leave anything permanent is our greatest folly. Catelyn gives us a brief history of Old Stones, which is interlaced with her own history as a youth, camping with her father and playing with Littlefinger as Jenny and Duncan Targaryen, Prince of Dragonflies. Rob knows it by the song, which was just mentioned in the previous Arya Chapter 2 as the ghost of Highheart is intimate with the story of Jenny and Duncan. But I already burned my jokes about Podrick and Florence Walsh in that Arya episode. <laughs> 
Duncan Targaryen was betrothed to a Baratheon daughter before he met Jenny, falling in love with the peasant woman who claimed lineage to the first men. Instead of putting aside his love to do his duty, Duncan abdicated his title as heir to Aegon V and Prince of Dragonstone to be with Jenny. This is how and when the Prince of Dragonflies moniker came into being. There's overlap with Rob's story here, breaking a marriage pact to marry for love to a person deemed lowly by the class structure at the time. Jane and Jenny are very close names in sound and spelling, and both claim descent from the first men. And though Duncan and Jenny did get to enjoy 20 years of life together, Duncan, like Rob, will meet a premature tragic doom, this time at Summerhall. But that conflict between class and love could also be applied to Littlefinger, who is the lowborn in love with the highborn Catelyn Stark, as she relays here. The more ancient history of Old Stone concerns House Mud, the tomb that Rob and Catelyn standing over is Christopher Four, known as the Hammer of Justice, which is metal as fuck. He won his first 99 battles, but lost his 100th, which too can be an analog to Rob's campaign if you consider the Red Wedding his lone defeat, though I'd be doing Frey Bolton propaganda in calling that a battle. <laughs> the history of Westeros is a series of conquests, cycles of violence playing out at the millennia level in the same way we see it play out in the intra and intergenerational level in the main story. That's such great stuff, man. This is, this is my favorite part of the chapter, and you just nailed it. Christopher's tomb is, is the defining image here, grounding all the talk about death and decay we see through the whole chapter. Time takes everything away. It's the only enemy you can't defeat. As, as so often in A Song of Ice and Fire, I think George is calling back to, to the poem Ozymandias here, the, the, the great prideful declaration of kinghood and just the, the image of how time just destroys any sense of pride or, or permanence. That you know, If your pride is rooted in permanence, your ability to defeat death, then you're always going to lose it. And it's just, it makes you feel so, so frail and, and fragile. It takes so much to build up a kingdom worthy of legend, and it takes so little to lose it. Losing one battle out of a hundred, your heir failing to be as awesome as you, a political system that can't survive without the one charismatic man the singers sing about. And yet, those songs are the only immortality we have. Catalan delivers one of my favorite lines in the story here. We're all just songs in the end, if we're lucky. That's the bittersweet ending right there. We live on, but only in memory, and only if we're lucky. Most aren't. Most people are forgotten, and in a way that feels like they never existed at all. George is kind of talking about his own story here. Yes, all these characters do live on in the song. This is the song. This is the song of ice and fire. But it's also, it's, it's a good thing that the small folk are able to, to repurpose the stones, as Catalan thinks about, that the people who live nearby have taken up the stones from the foundation. That's good, because, I mean, the castle's not doing house mud any good anymore. <laughs> Why not put them to use? Let them build up other homes instead, instead of being this, like this static mausoleum and tribute for people who aren't around to care. Again, it feels like the cycle of life. We're born to die, but our corpses feed the new trees. House mud is the soil from which the modern riverlands have grown. Literally the mud. And there's the, there's the tragedy to Christopher's story, of course. The fall of the first men to the Andals. But remember, Catelyn is an Andal. She worships the Seven. Those were her ancestors bringing Christopher down. Along the same lines, stories keep regenerating themselves for a new generation. Catelyn thinks about how she and Littlefinger played at being Duncan and Jenny. So you understand on some level why he thought he could remake that in his own image, in his own life. New stories take hold and we incorporate them into our lives. King Christopher's fall at the hands of Seven Kings sets up the fall of the last kingdom of the First Men, as Emmett just alluded to. 
His heir was not able to live up to his legacy, which again refracts back onto our current day situation with Rob, who has yet to leave Jane Westerling with issue or with child, and any succession beyond that has yet to be put to parchment. Rikan, Bran, and Arya are off the table since they're assumed dead, and Sansa needs to be bumped from the list because it would then pass Winterfell into Lannister hands. Catelyn Stark looks to name a distant cousin in the Vale in a series of genealogical jumps that reminds me of the whole Harry the Air plot. Littlefinger must have rubbed off a bit on Catelyn. Mm, scratch that phrasing. <laughs> oh, oh no. Oh no. Cat's diversion is to steer the matter away from Jon, of course. Though my favorite part is really Rob's report that he's actually willing to use the executive power he has to do the things that he wants. We can trade John for men and provisions. We can use royal decree to wash away his vows, vows and bastardy. He's even able to cite precedent laid forth recently by the Iron Throne, thanks to the dismissal of Barristan Selmy. A lot of what Rob talks about here foreshadows later events in these books, the legitimization of Ramsay Snow by royal decree, and the offer to release John from his vows to become the number one claimant on the Stark ancestral home. Of course, Stannis has stipulations in his contract that complicate things, but we don't need to get into all that just now. But this is one of the understated parts of George's writing. Very rarely do political agendas or policy plans just happen by circumstance or decree. George often seeds the ideas well before we see them play out on page, or he'll recall events we have seen, like the dismissal of Barristan, to build towards future plot points. Nothing ever feels out of left field, except when it's supposed to feel that way, like, say, a shadow baby. Speaking of recalling events, Catelyn tries to throw Targaryen history at Rob, namely Aegon the unworthy, legitimized bastard brood that harried the crown for generations in the Blackfire rebellions. The last of these pretenders, well, last until young Grift, maybe, was slayed by Barristan the Bold, which, just to tie this chapter's histories into a neat little package, the nickname of Bold was given to Barristan by the Prince of Dragonflies himself when they tilted at the tourney of Blackhaven in 247 AC. And while I am personally pro-Jon Snow myself, Catelyn's arguments have merit within the context of Westerosi society and the systems of power in place, which Emmett and Jeff talked about at length going way back to A Game of Thrones. And John's ascension to heir would be a political and personal failure for Catelyn, who in this patriarchal arrangement is required to keep the Tully line alive and provide issue for the house she marries into. We can and should decry this political system, but I don't think it takes much to understand why this would be so devastating to Catelyn, regardless if she thinks John poses a legitimate threat or not. While Rob shrugs off the Targaryen comparison, the Theon one hits closer to the mark. Rob is not happy with that one, as evidenced by Greywind, and at this point Rob is neither asking Catelyn her permission or forgiveness on the matter. Theon gets one of his fleeting mentions in this book, and its relation to Rob's secession crisis portends the Greyjoy secession we will discuss a little bit later in this chapter, and then of course be a huge part of the story when we get to A Feast for Crows. Uh, Manu, I commend you on saying wrapped up in a nice little package without doing the Homer Simpson <laughs> nice little package, which is the only I, way I, had I to can fight say it. every instinct in my body. <laughs> uh, I love this scene between Rob and Catelyn. Uh, as a reader, we feel for Catelyn deeply. She's lost so much. She feels like she's barely herself anymore. She's lashing out to those closest to her. She has no dreams for the future, save for Rob's safety. He's her only remaining tether to life. 
That's why she fights against legitimizing John so strongly. See, she, uh, she sees John as a threat to uh, her only remaining son and his heirs, which, like you said, is her legacy. Not to mention, she's definitely not over the whole my husband brought his acknowledged bastard to be raised in our home incident. Uh, since she's our point of view, we readers are inclined to sympathize with her. We know her thoughts, we feel her pain, and she does make some well-reasoned arguments. But Catelyn isn't really looking at the big picture. She's worried about Jon's legitimized descendants endangering Rob's heirs. Um, Cat, what was it that your son just said to you? A king must have an heir. If I should die in my next battle, the kingdom must not die with me. Catelyn basically rejects this scenario outright. She doesn't even address it. On a human level, it's understandable. Catelyn doesn't have the emotional capacity to contemplate the death of her firstborn, the only child she has left. She's barely ha hanging on as it is, and as we'll see, Rob's death does destroy her. It snuffs out the last of her humanity and turns her heart to stone. As king, Rob doesn't have the luxury of humanity. He needs to put the personal aside and think about the survival of his kingdom. If he didn't, who knows what could happen? If he died without an heir, the North could end up ruled by someone cruel and vindictive with a penchant for flaying. I don't know. <laughs> just yeah, yeah, just off the top of my head. Uh, George has shown us the violence the Westerosi political system has done to the small folk, and he'll continue to do so. But here we see the violence it inflicts to those at the very top. Catelyn and Rob should be grieving together. Healing together. Instead, they've never been further apart. They may as well be on opposite banks of the flooded trident. Catelyn is a widow and a grieving mother, while Rob is a king. Oh, that reminds me, I need to see if I'll get a day off work for King Charles's coronation. <laughs> <laughs> Most important event yeah. of the year, of the season, of the absolutely, century. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> Gotta be That's there. That's what the Daily Mail tells me. <laughs> exactly. Always right. The past is lingering for Catelyn on a personal level as well as a political one. Christopher and Jenny aren't the only ghosts here. There's also the old wound of Ned's betrayal, or what seemed like a betrayal as far as Catelyn knows. And that is clearly what's motivating her here. She does have an argument to make, she is broadly right about the Blackfire precedent, and she's also got a point that Rob trusted Theon too, and look how that turned out. But she's ultimately not speaking from a strategic place. This is personal, not business, because she always saw Jon's presence as an insult. A way that Ned kept her at a distance even as they grew so close over the years, like she was thinking about earlier. Rob is 100% right that Jon has more of a connection to Winterfell and the North than some randos in the Vale they've never even met. It seems unlikely that the Northmen would accept the latter, whereas they'll probably crown Jon like they did in the show. Catelyn really gives away the game when she brings up Arya. Sure, we know she's alive and actually isn't that far away, but based on the information they have, Rob is right to say Arya's dead. Catelyn is grasping at straws, refusing to face the reality that the only way forward is to acknowledge Jon as part of their family. With Edmure and now Rob properly ticked off at Cat, she thinks about the frail male ego. And honestly, she's right, and she should say it. It's one of those things where I'm sympathetic to her tough love, but on reread, I just wish her last moments with her son and brother were more positive for everyone involved. She tries to find solace with the Mormont ladies again. Daisy doing a bit of ironic foreshadowing, saying she'd prefer evil rain to fall on them instead of arrows. At the Red Wedding, arrows will rain down once the Reigns of Castamere starts playing. Damn you, George, finding a way to twist the knife before we even get there. As discussed earlier, on Bear Island, femininity looks different than it does elsewhere in Westeros, 
in large part due to those aforementioned raids by Ironborn and Wildlings. It is in no way a rejection of gender, as demonstrated by the gate carving of a woman in a bearskin, babe at her breast and axe in hand. Motherhood is still expressed therein, but the axe represents gendered violence usually reserved for men in Westeros. When people talk about gender being a social construct, this is a hint towards that. Gender roles are part of the superstructure placed on top of our relation to our material needs and means of production. If the material needs in Bear Island are different, that gets reflected back in its social makeup. All the transphobes, TERFs, and otherwise shitty people who push a gender binary on society will argue that the role of men and women have been cast in stone since the dawn of time, but the version of masculinity and femininity that we call traditional is maybe 100, 160 years old tops. The Industrial Revolution, especially in Britain, is where a lot of our notions about the man as a breadwinner and gender domestic labor came into focus. Tying back to our discussion of history as a messy battle of ideas, the way we have enforced gender binary and performance in the Anglosphere is not necessarily or inevitably the way things are supposed to be. And hey, talking about shitty people, Jorah Mormont. <laughs> it's always, always fascinating to hear about Jorah on this side of the pond, especially from his family who had to deal with his crimes in exile. Though the topic really is Linus Hightower, who never acclimated to the North in the way Catelyn did. And while that may be just two different dispositions, as Kat said, her and Ned forged a real relationship over time. I think it's safe to say if Jorah was selling slaves to help give Lyness that luxurious southern lifestyle, their relationship was not on as firm footing as Ned and Kat's was. It feels like Jorah never got out of the mindset that he had to keep winning tourneys, sometimes literal but also metaphorical, to keep her happy and his. Manu... As someone who is non-binary and has an anthropology degree, you've made my damn week. Uh, just to reinforce your point there, there's just so much scholarly research and literature showing that gender roles vary by culture and change over time within those cultures. There is nothing inherent or correct or proper about any of it. And yeah, Jorah is the worst, and I can't imagine he was a good husband. <laughs> Although, I think it's telling that Mage and Daisy direct their criticism to Liness and not their exiled kinsmen. I wonder if they blame her for Jorah's slaving and subsequent exile. It, it wouldn't be the first misplaced blame in the story. <laughs> and even just furthering the point, you know, people who have different relationships to femininity can still also display misogyny or, you know, blame, you know, Liness in this situation specifically. Yeah, absolutely. At Hag's Mire, Catelyn reunites with Jason Malister, Zaddy and Lord of Seaguard, who has brought with him some good news courtesy of some fucking guy? I would call this our first real confirmation of the death of Balon Greyjoy, following up on Stannis' leech play from Davos IV and the Ghost of Highheart delivering the news in more cryptic manner in Arya Eight. But on reread, with the benefit of knowing Balon is a big old putz anywho, we can zoom in on Euron, and I'm sure you can hear Emmett's leitmotif playing at Euron's mention. Aye, <laughs> the guilty, brother's guilty. back. After traveling to the edge of the world and back, he just sat his ass on the sea stone chair and called squatters. So we get Daddy Jason Malister bringing us this guy, the, the captain of the Mirham, who you may recall is the guy who sailed Theon home to the Iron Islands back in Book 2, the guy whose uh, daughter Theon was fucking uh, in his first POV chapter. And we get the news, we get to say goodbye to Balin Greyjoy. Good riddance to the last and least of the five kings. <laughs> Accomplished nothing but fucking everything up for the Starks. The single dumbest player 
in the Game of Thrones. But yeah, more importantly, this is where we learn that Euron Greyjoy, the second son, has come home and taken over the Iron Islands in what sounds like two minutes. We heard about Euron in A Clash of Kings from Theon and Asha, who let us know that even the old way Ironborn, the guys all about rape and murder and pillaging, are freaked out by how good Euron is at the rape and the murder and the pillaging. Theon thought to himself, old men were cautious by nature. His father was old now, and so too was Uncle Victarion, who commanded the Iron Fleet. His uncle Euron was a different song, to be sure. But the silence did not seem to be in port. And then later Ash is talking to him. Euron Crozai had no lack of cunning, though. I've heard men say terrible things of that one. Theon shifted his seat. My uncle Euron has not been seen in the islands for close on two years. He may be dead. If so, it might be for the best. Lord Balin's eldest brother had never given up the old way even for a day. His silence with its black sails and dark red hull was infamous in every port from Ibn to Ashai, it was said. So George has already been telling us that Euron is the worst of the Greyjoys, categorically different from the rest. A different, a different song, as Theon puts it, which is a telling choice of words given the earlier conversation in this chapter about Jenny's song, and also, you know, the title of the story, A Song of Ice and Fire. Rob backs that up here. Euron is no king, he says, if half of what Theon said of him is true. Now, we don't know what Theon said, but I think it's possible that Theon, like his uncle Aaron, was molested by Euron. Because, as you can see in that scene with Asha, he's really uncomfortable talking mm -hmm. about him. Mm -hmm. And in his released Winds of Winter chapter, he thinks about having seen the crow's eye, Euron's black eye that he keeps hidden behind the eye patch, which no one else has mentioned. So, I think that's possible. Regardless, now Euron's back. And I love that Galbert thinks the brother's back means Victarion at first, because Victarion is the one they know. Euron has been in exile for years. He's a stranger. Maybe the stranger. And even here, before we get into A Feast for Crows, George is hinting pretty heavily that Euron is responsible for Balin's death. He immediately shows up, takes the chair, drowns anyone who disagrees. It's a swift and brutal takeover. He's been to a shy and back, the captain of the Mirahem says. His, his ship is crewed by mutes, just adding to that fearsome reputation. But then George puts a pin in that for later. What matters now is what Rob does about it. Yeah, Rob doesn't really have a proper read on Euron. I mean, who does at this point? <laughs> but he does understand a bit of what's about to follow, thanks to Theon. The Ironborn leaders will have to either garrison or abandon their possessions in the north. Victarion at Mokalin and Asha at Deepwood Mott specifically. The window of daylight is all Rob needs to crystallize his Reconquista campaign in the north. Moat Kalen is the important choke point, as Emmett and Jeff discussed way back in Cat 7 A Game of Thrones, and will become relevant again in our Reek chapters in A Dance with Dragons. It's not just that Victorian has to leave his post, but he's going to need his best officers with him at the King's Moot, so whatever force is left behind should be skeletal and vulnerable. With Malister longships, Rob hopes to get in behind the ancient stronghold and take the Ironborn unawares as they focus on the Stark, Bolton, Frey army coming from the south. This feels like an inverse of King Robert's victory at Summerhall, Rob's namesake. Back then, King Robert used the strategy of central positioning out of Summerhall to beat back three different armies. Here, Rob will be deploying three different armies to attack Mokalin from the north and west as the main forces march up from the south. The plans are mostly good, other than the fact that Rob is banking on Boltons and Freys. 
And well, I don't think I have to explain that. <laughs> the, the plan that was promised banked heavily on Howland Reed as well, as George once again toys with the reader, as we hope that this is what finally pulls the Lord Cranach man into the game. I assume when the story circles back to Rob's will and the returns of Mage Mormont and Galbert Glover, we will see Howland finally, but definitely a lot later than this plan would have us believe. It's one of one of George's more cruel delays right there because we've been building him up forever and then nope, skipping right over that. <laughs> and so uh, Rob makes the connection now between his story and the Ironborn story clear. Balin left chaos behind, he says, and I would not. This is what could happen to the Starks. Like you were saying how the Tristopher and House Mud is kind of like a warning for the Starks. Same deal here with the Greyjoys. Rob rightfully predicts that every other Greyjoy will go home to challenge Euron, as we see in A Feast for Crows, opening up an opportunity. Rob still has a strong political and military mind. A king indeed, as Catalan thinks, using every asset to its fullest. He's sending ambassadors with false messages, that's a nice touch. He's using Jason Malister's ships. As Jason Malister says, I can't take on the Iron Fleet. Rob knows that, that's not what he's using him for. And he's relying on Howland Reed because his dad told him he could. And so he's going to split up his men and use the Great John as his attack dog. Which is perfect, that's a good use of your Great John number, just send him <laughs> at the enemy, like a hammer. It's a viable plan. Only Catelyn feels like she's cut out of it. Is it because of John? she thinks? Or is it because she's a woman? Or specifically because she's Rob's mother? I think the answer is yes. Yes to all of the above. <laughs> Rob needed Catelyn to negotiate with Stannis and Renly. As he said at the time, he couldn't send the Great John to do that. But now the negotiations part of the war seems to be over. So is Catelyn going to be an honored guest? Or, as she thinks, a prisoner? But, of course, it won't happen. Just like Rob's attack plan at Moat Kaelin won't happen. George is just expertly leading us on, so we won't see the knife coming from Walder Frey and Roose Bolton until it's too late. And the battle plan scene is also the pinnacle of Rob's kingship and his character arc. Sure, he's on the back foot, but he has a cunning plan to win back his kingdom. It has the enthusiastic backing of all his present bannermen. He has a solution to a potential succession crisis. He's politically outmaneuvered Catelyn, and he has a hot wife who loves him. He's, <laughs> he's no longer Rob the boy begging for Catelyn's help like he was back in the Game of Thrones. He's become a true Arthurian figure. He's king in the north, and it's all for naught. True kings, warriors of legend, they're not the ones who survive in this world. And to be fair, George did warn us. Rhaegar fought valiantly. Rhaegar fought nobly. Rhaegar fought honorably. And Rhaegar died. Yeah, that's so good. And I think all of this, the detailed battle plan, the allure of Howland Reed, hell, maybe even seeing Seaguard in a Catelyn chapter, are all two tools George is using to have us look past the wedding at the twins. The reader is looking to the future, to the horizon, which Master Yoda would scold us for. There's a heuristic in narrative media that if you have a full plan laid out, you are never going to see that plan executed as such. Or for the secession heads out there, if you see Kendall Roy perform Honesty by Billy Joel in a dress rehearsal, something will go wrong before the actual live performance as things usually do with Kendall Roy. <laughs> what does Ma Roman say? Kendall will self-destruct because that's his favorite. <laughs> Martin is effectively dangling the future carrot in front of the reader before sticking us with the present of the Red Wedding. I mentioned earlier how, as we build to the Red Wedding, it feels like a lot of the narrative is coming full circle, playing greatest hits from the first part of the story, revisiting old locations, and in this case, we even have Rob trapping his mother, much like he did in Catelyn 2 of this book earlier. 
Back then, he was able to use the performance of court and family to reveal his marriage to Jane Westerling in a way that Catelyn couldn't publicly reject or protest. Here, Rob has already told his generals his plan for Catelyn, and only springs it on her when everyone is agreed that Rob's plan to retake the North is good and settled. They had known, she thinks. She's officially been cut out of the circle of trust here, augmented by the fact that she will be quote-unquote exiled to Seaguard for the remainder of Rob's military campaign. It's just another gut punch that as Rob and Catelyn inch closer to Doom, they inch further apart from each other. So moving into foreshadowing and groundwork, we get mention of Robeck Glover's safe return in exchange for Martin Lannister, taking ship from Duskendale to White Harbor where he will try to raise men for the northern cause again. No need to get into all that, but this is something we talked about with, our, with the attack on Duskendale in previous chapters. As amazing as the Red Wedding is by itself, it's the epicenter for so much of the politics and conflicts going on elsewhere. Sansa's marriage, Stannis' allies in the north, Davos and Robed and Wyman scheming, it's all about these layers to the onion, not just the Red Wedding in the middle. I feel like foreshadowing and groundwork could be the title of the chapter. <laughs> That's yeah. great. Uh, no matter what you think about George abandoning the five-year gap, the first three books benefit from George writing them with it in mind. Uh, a Storm of Swords ends on an act break or an intermission in the story. All our point of views have either left the mortal coil or have had their circumstances drastically changed. And I truly admire George's writing in this chapter. I mean... More than just this chapter, but this chapter especially. Uh, the first time reader is focused on Rob's dismal situation, Catelyn's just brutally raw grief, and then the wet and generally miserable atmosphere. Yeah, we sense something big is coming, uh, potentially something pretty bad for the King in the North, but we're left more with a, a vibe, a sense, rather than an idea of what's to come. The rereader sees this as George stomping on their foot and yelling, Hello, Mr. Thompson! <laughs> <laughs> and it's not just the Red Wedding he set up here. It's the next act of A Song of Ice and Fire. It's the Blackfires and Young Griff. Uh, although, like you said, I'm not sure it's been confirmed that he's a Blackfire. Uh, John is the next king in the north. The Ironborn King's mood. And Euron maybe, probably replacing the Lannisters as the human big bad of the story. It's just really impressive writing. <laughs> Go, George. That's so true. And he, he never takes his eye off the ball with regards to the, the central characters of the chapter. Everything is filtered through what the Blackfire president means for Catelyn and Rob, what the Ironborn shenanigans means for Catelyn and Rob. So it doesn't feel extraneous or forced. It's just interwoven really well. And he, he minds it for everything it's worth. Like Even after he has to abandon the Fiverr Gap and rework his plan, yeah, many mentioned Robert Glover. I love that the it's like the B and C team characters kind of run the North and dance because the A team characters are dead. They die right here with 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 Rob. So it's Robert Glover and you know the Umber uncles and Barbary Dustin who he comes up with, and it's, uh, it's the the kind of the the, the topsoil kind of got churned and kind of a new a new cast of characters runs the North in a dance with dragons. And yeah, a lot of that is is set up right here. And lastly, for theory and discussion. Rob announces loudly that he will not go forward without an heir and asks his lords to affix their seals to his last will. Which, it's Jon Snow, right? Could it not be Jon? This is, this is a source of a lot of theories out there that because Rob doesn't, doesn't explicitly say it's Jon at the very end of the chapter, it's someone else. There are theories that it's, it's Catelyn or he finally went back unnamed Arya. I think it's, it's probably Jon in the same way that 
uh, there's the great bit at the end of the Red Wedding itself when uh, it's just like a man in a pink cloak and blood-spattered armor or whatever comes up to Rob, says Jamie Lannister sends his regards and kills him, and George doesn't actually write that it's Bruce Bolton. So there are some theories that it's not, and I think, you know, I think it's definitely Roos because of the regards thing, but also just that Catelyn is just breaking down at that moment and just doesn't recognize him. And yeah, here I don't, yeah, I think it's, I think it's, I think it's still John. And I totally agree with what you said earlier that this, this will is going to be the vessel not only maybe for making John the king, but also for getting Howland Reed actively involved, which is, that's wild because Howland is the one who knows that John is the heir to a completely different crown. <laughs> so that's... That's going to be be interesting to navigate, but yeah. So yeah, how do Pat? How do you think the the will's going to come back in? I I mean I agree. I think it is John. I think the one thing I am certain of is that in the timeline, the the will comes before the burning of Shireen because this is the catalyst yep. to just put Stannis over the edge. Couldn't agree more. Mm-hmm. I I think that like. Whether Stannis, I, I don't think there's going to be like a battle of the bastards like there was in the show. I think Stannis is going to clear the Boltons. He's going to do some really impressive, almost heroic stuff. And then they're going to get this will and they're all going to be like, oh, so shit. Thanks. OK, yeah. Yeah. He's the king now. Cool. Thanks. And Stannis is just going to going to melt down. Exactly. I, what I want, and this is too <laughs> nice of a bow, like a neat little package uh, <laughs> for for, you know, this story. But. I want Stoneheart to be present and sort of accept it because she does have Rob's crown and it kind of like her finally accepting that this is his will. I don't think that's going to happen. The other thing I want, which is even too, even more cutesy is I kind of want the flame that was, um, uh, that's in her, that was passed to her. I want her to give the kiss to John to resurrect him. But that's that's too that's too much. That's not that's not gonna happen. <laughs> that's not this story. <laughs> and I think you get to something with Catelyn's involvement or Lady Stoneheart's involvement with all this, because even going back to the original pitch letter, George had Catelyn, uh, you know, going north to the Wall initially with Bran and stuff, uh, fleeing Tyrion, burning Winterfell. Of course, yeah. we're all well past that, but it did look like there ended up being some kind of intersection between Cat and John at some point, um, and that may have radically changed. But this will is a way, like you say, to bring Howland Reed possibly back into the game. If that group of the Brotherhood is working with Howland Reed around at the same time, and of course, we have we still have to find out John's parentage officially through some manner and Holland Reed seems the best way to do that plus you have Rob's will it does feel like that quote-unquote neat little package there's just eight different plot threads that really nicely converge on Holland Reed Rob's will Lady Stoneheart and Jon Snow even if they're kind of geographically disparate right now there is a lot of kind of storylines that could wrap up together some of them if not all of them Great points. And yeah, the geographical distance is, is a hurdle to overcome, but Helen Reed could be the connective tissue. Brienne could even be the connective tissue since she's involved with Stoneheart. Maybe she goes north at some point as she does in the show. And yeah, Pat, I love what you're saying there about this being the the straw that, that breaks the camel's back for Stannis because uh, I, I do think it, it's actually, it makes much more sense for his character in this perverse way where he does the thing and wins the battle and the Northmen are just still just like, no. Because that, that reject, rejection is what hurts Stannis more than defeat. So, especially since he... Uh, I was mentioning this to my roommate, Chloe, uh, the other day. Your roommate. My roommate yeah. that I live with. Uh, that there's the bit 
in uh, one of Danny's Storm of Swords chapters where she finds out that she finds out that Jorah betrayed her to to Varus was spying on her, and she asks why, and Jorah just says Varus said that I could go home, and Danny thinks I was going to take you home, and I think we're gonna see a version of that with Stannis and John because Stannis is gonna be like I offered to take you home, I was gonna make you Lord of Winterfell, we were gonna do it together, and now you're doing it without me. Yeah, I think that's gonna be completely agreed. That's that's what puts him over the top. So yeah, all these all these different storylines I think have the potential to come to to come together around this uh, this little piece of paper Rob has here, which is also interesting because it ties back to the whole piece of paper as a shield discussion that we have with Ned Stark. But I think it'll work out a little differently here. It works thematically too because Cersei is like literally ripping up the precedent, and the Starks yes. are all about the honor and the precedent. So the fact that ah the paper actually we follow the rules and it it makes a a Stark a king kind of you know that's perfect. I love that. So I think that is going to wrap us up for Storm of Swords, Catelyn 5. Pat, this was so great. I'm so glad you wanted to come, up, come on for this one. Great time. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I had a wonderful time. So did we. So uh, thank you folks for listening. As always, if you want to leave us a rating or review in your podcast app of choice, we really appreciate that. It helps people find us. You can shoot us an email at notacastasoiaf at gmail.com. You can follow us at notacastasoiaf on Twitter and Instagram. And you can find me at Poor Quentin on Twitter. And I'm Manu, also known as Nuclear Bomb. You can find my other podcast, my brother, my captain, my podcast, where we cover Lord of the Rings and currently Secession. Yes, excellent. Watching Secession every week again. It's been a, been a beautiful time. Not a, I don't like myself on Monday mornings because of it, but it's worth it. It's worth it. <laughs> Absolutely. And Pat, where can, where can the fine people at home find you? They can find me on Twitter currently <laughs> at uh, PRock1990. Uh, and I don't really have anything to promote at the moment, but hopefully, uh, relatively soon, I will be looking for beta readers if my uh, manuscript decides to start working with me. <laughs> Excellent. That's wonderful. Hey, congratulations. Hopefully. Oh, thank you. So, my most recent Star Wars episode, Wrapping Up Revenge of the Sith and the Prequel Trilogy, that is now out for all of our $5 and above patrons. Uh, no new Star Wars episode next month or new Lord of the Rings episode this month. Just got a busy couple months going on. But I will be back to The Lord of the Rings in late May with Book 6, Chapter 4, The Field of Cormelon. And then Manu will be joining me to kick off A New Hope in the original trilogy in June. That's going to be a great time. And next up in A Song of Ice and Fire, two weeks from now, we will be with A Storm of Swords, Samwell 3. In which Sam... You know, you think getting chased by the others and then dealing with the mutiny and crafters keep would be enough for one book, but Sam, Sam has still more problems to deal with. He's honestly hunted more by the memory of his dad than he is by the whites and the others in that chapter. Ran, ran, exactly. Randall, Randall Tarley, Sean, Sean Collins called him a, a Republican with a sword, just a football <laughs> coach in the world of Westeros, is more oh. tar- terrifying than any zombie. That'll wrap us up, and we'll see you in two weeks' time for A Storm of Swords, Samwell 3. 